the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan voters will find three proposals on their ballots in November. One that would extend voting reforms, another that would loosen legislative term limits, and a third that would make abortion rights part of the state constitution. Zach Gorchow, publisher and executive editor of Gongwar News Service, will join to talk about all three. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Little has gotten more attention in the recent news cycle than the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade this spring. And with that decision, there has been a ton of action from states across the country to either preserve the right to an abortion, or in some cases, to make it even harder to get one. In Michigan, the future of state residents' ability to get an abortion is going to go directly to the people. With sufficient ballot signatures, Michiganders are going to be able to vote on Proposal 3, which expands the right to an abortion and enshrines that right in the state constitution. That is, of course, the most attention-grabbing proposal that we will see on our ballots in just about a month. But it's not the only one. There are two other proposals, if passed, will expand the right to vote, increase transparency among lawmakers, and change our term limit laws as they affect members of the state legislature. Now, a little later in the hour, we're going to talk a little about how lawmakers are adding money to the state budget to expand the economy. Lauren Gibbons of Bridge, Michigan, is going to join us to talk about that. But right now, we want to dive headfirst into all of the issues surrounding Michigan's ballot proposals. And we've got a great guest to help us do that. Zach Gorchow is the publisher and executive editor of the Gongwer News Service. Zach, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So uh, I want to start with a flashback. Uh, 2012 was the year that we had six ballot proposals in front of voters. And I think all of us in the media and, and lots of voters, too, remember how much there was to sort out that year and probably remember it not terribly fondly. This is not the same year, but we do have three proposals, and that's kind of a lot uh, for right now. So so first talk about this whole process of deciding really important questions uh, in this state by ballot proposal. We seem to really like to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can um, go out and get signatures of registered voters if there's something uh, you feel needs to change in state law. And if you were to get uh, roughly 425,000 signatures of registered voters. You can get a constitutional amendment on the ballot, and if you can get about 347,000, you can put a change to statute on the ballot. And it's um, it's one of those things where it's neither easy nor is it that difficult. Uh, in general, if you have the money, and if you have and or have the troops to go get the signatures, it's it, it can be done. It is a lot of effort, but it is a relatively makeable threshold to get those signatures. Um, but if you don't have those things, if you're really just a band of a few people, no, that it's really that it's really difficult. It's really hard to do. Yeah. So, so uh, talk to me just a little about the 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 sort of strategic theory behind these ballot proposals. I mean, some people will say that people 
just go in and vote one way on all of them, right? They vote yes on everything. They vote no on every or on everything. And, and it's hard to get people to kind of drill down on each of them. Uh, other people say, look, if if you've got the money and and can uh, get on the airwaves and get in people's mailboxes, you can get uh, get people to vote yes on some things, but no on others. What when people are thinking about these ballot proposals, how much thought do they put into to that part of the process? Well, I think you raise a really good point. Uh, you mentioned 2012. Uh, there was a very active and uh, well-coordinated vote no on everything campaign that mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. And it worked because most of the proposals, maybe even all of them, were very narrowly tailored, brought by a particular interest group to suit their group's needs. These were not, in general, these were not proposals that really engaged the public on a gut level issue. Um, you may, you know, just for as an example, there was one there to prevent the building of the new bridge to Canada. Obviously, that was brought by the Maroon family, mm-hmm. very narrowly tailored. So a no on everything campaign worked quite well because none of these were issues that I think when voters got in the ballot box, they're like, oh, yeah, I know how I feel on that. No, it was new new kinds of things that they had to make a judgment on and and uh, every one of the constitutional amendments failed that year uh this is different and i think we could go back to 2018 uh when there were also uh, as i recall three proposals on the ballot mm-hmm. um you had uh marijuana recreational marijuana you had a voting access proposal and then you had redistricting and all three of those uh, really struck a gut-level chord in people. Um, and all none of those three had a very well-coordinated opposition. We're looking at, uh, you know, some of the same dynamics in 2022, uh, but not, not exactly. Uh, so we have three proposals. You've got the term limits and state elected official financial disclosure proposal. Mm-hmm. You've got another voting access proposal. And then you have the abortion uh, proposal you mentioned. Uh, you know, the abortion proposal clearly is one of those that goes to people's gut level views. And so that's one where, you know, a vote no on everything, you know, is not going to, I think, cut through the clutter the way it did in 2012, because most people know how they feel about abortion. Mm-hmm. Now, they may, you know, still be figuring out how they feel about this exact proposal. But a, a lot of the vote is already baked in, and saying vote no on everything, I, I don't think is going to is going to resonate there. Um, you know, you can't really make the case that this is, you know, each of these proposals is somehow going to, you know, benefit a narrow group in the same way you could with the 2012 one. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's some attempt to do this, to to do a no on everything. But right now. The only well-organized opposition is the vote no on Proposal 3, the abortion proposal led by Rights Life of Michigan and the Michigan Catholic Conference. Mm -hmm. There really is not, right now, a well-funded, well-organized opposition to Proposal 1, which is the term limits, financial disclosure 1, and Proposal 2, which is the voting access 1. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get a little deeper into... To each one of these proposals, and we might as well start, of course, with Proposal 3, which is the one that is getting the most attention. I see lots of ads uh, about this proposal uh, every day alongside the ads for for candidates. Uh, the, the, the question here, I, I think, is deeper than just how you feel about abortion. Uh, this proposal goes further than maybe some people are comfortable with. And I wonder how much that will matter uh, when people go into the the, the voting booth. I've seen some ads that, in fact, say this goes too far and and this is beyond what uh, this is beyond what even people who support the right to uh, to to choose to end a pregnancy might might be comfortable with. Well, and that is the message from the no side. You know, there. You know, I saw a yard sign today. It's like two. It said no on three. Too confusing. Too extreme. That's clear. That's clearly going to be their message. The no on three campaign is not waging a campaign to say keep Michigan's ban on abortion intact because they know that is a more politically 
difficult position to defend. But they do know that if they if they try to make claims that Proposal 3 would uh, upend the state's parental consent requirement for minors to, to get an abortion, if it would affect uh, rules and regulations on abortion clinics, uh, if it would in some way allow abortion, um, you know, in the third trimester, which is, you know, not really a, a, a frequent event, a statistics show, but is something that is, uh, you know, been a, something that has been politically successful that the anti-abortion side has argued for years. Um, they know if they can fight the battle on those grounds, they're in better shape, mm-hmm. um, and they have that. That's how they're going to try. And that's how they are trying to defeat the proposal. Um, so that, you know, the, the question is, is that in fact true? <laughs> and the, the proposal it clearly would invalidate the state's ban on abortion, which dates to actually it dates to 1846, mm-hmm. although the current statute is 1931. Uh, that would clearly be invalidated. That law says uh, the performing of an abortion is a felony. Um, unless it is to save the mother's life with no other exception. Um, so that would be invalidated. But what's not clear is what would happen to the parental consent law, which was a 1990s-era statute saying a minor needed to get a parental consent for an abortion, but there were some waiver provisions built into that as well. Um, the, the yes side has been a little bit conflicted on its messaging on this, but there seems to be an argument that, look, minors don't have the same rights as an adult. Yes, the constitutional amendment says every individual has a fundamental right to reproductive freedom, um, but you know, no one has ever said that people younger than 18 have the full rights of an adult. Um, what, what will clearly be, what I would suspect will happen is, is that the courts are going to have to settle a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, if, let's say, Proposal 3 passes and uh, a minor you know, let's say, tells their parent, uh, I'm going to get an abortion, there's nothing you can do to stop me, you know, that parent may then go to court to try to stop it. And there will be a you know, very visible case uh, arguing uh, this issue out. Um, and that's probably what it will take to get clarification on this and a whole host of other things. Uh, you know, one of the, the key pieces of that statute, which is what the no side is arguing, is um, the... The proposal says you can only the state can only regulate or it can regulate abortion um, and reproductive freedom in the I believe the third trimester if it has a can demonstrate a compelling state interest. Right. And you say okay that sounds pretty straightforward. But then the definition of compelling also says that it can't infringe on an individual's autonomous decision making. So. That that just feels like something that is going to have to be settled in the courts, you know, once, if and when this does pass, because how do you, you know, how do the courts define, you know, compelling? How How is that? Right. What does that actually what does that actually mean in practical terms? Uh, we should also talk about what will happen if this were to fail. There are injunctions in place to stop right. that 1931 law from being enforced. There are some prosecutors in the state who've said that they are eager to start uh, litigating against uh, medical professionals who perform abortions if this were not to pass in November. And I know that that there are lots of signs that, that point to the fact that it probably will. But if it didn't, we would go back to that 1931 state right. of the law. Is that right? That's, that's right. And the big question, you know, the Michigan Supreme Court has at least one case before it on the question of the 1931 law and has been sitting on it uh, pretty clearly. I think it wants to see what voters decide. Um, you know, if voters pass Proposal 3, all these cases are moot and the court doesn't have to make, you know, what would be a very, you know, controversial decision um, either way. Uh, if 3 does fail, I think we will then see, um, you know, considerable pressure and likely movement in the Supreme Court to make a decision likely by the end of the year Um you know, right now there is a narrow Democratic majority on the Michigan Supreme Court, mm-hmm. four to three. Uh, and, you know, 
that that majority could change theoretically in the election if both Republican candidates were to win. Uh, the court would have a Republican majority come January. Uh, I don't know, you know, no way to know for sure what's going to happen there. But um, I think what probably a lot of the yes on three people would say, hey, look, we just saw uh, a longstanding court precedent, uh, Roe versus Wade, overturned mm-hmm. once the composition of the court, Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court changed. And we can't count on the Michigan Supreme Court to always agree with us on this. So even if they were to say, Uh, declare the 1931 law to conflict with the Michigan Constitution, uh, a subsequent more conservative Michigan Supreme Court could certainly overturn that ruling, and then that 1931 law would be back into effect um, down the road. So that, I think, is one of the arguments of vote on three is, look, this provides certainty um, for sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Zach Gorchow, who is the publisher and executive editor of Gongwar News Service in Lansing. We're talking about all three ballot proposals that Michiganders will find in the voting booth in November. Also want to start uh, getting uh, you guys involved in the conversation. Give us a call and tell us what you think uh, about the ballot proposals. Do you want expanded abortion access? Do you want more transparency among our lawmakers? We're going to talk about that proposal next. Uh, also, give us a sense of what you think about voting reforms. We've been on a long path of voting reforms here in the state of Michigan. It would continue if proposal if a proposal on the November ballot uh, passes as well. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Zach Gorchow. He is the publisher and executive editor of the Gongwar News Service in Lansing. We're talking about the three ballot proposals that voters will find uh, on their ballots in November. One is, uh, of course, about abortion rights uh, and is getting a lot of attention, but there are two others that are getting a little less attention. One, about uh, legislative term limits and the transparency that uh, legislators have to indulge about uh, how they finance their campaigns. The other is uh, about the the path uh, along voting reforms that uh, we have been on here in Michigan for a while, and it would extend that path. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know what you're thinking about these proposals. Are you planning to vote in favor of all of them or are you voting against all of them? Are there some that you're thinking about, want more information about, or just need a little more time to make up your mind? Tell us what you're looking for to determine whether you're going to vote for any of these proposals. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to start off here with Anthony in Ann Arbor, who's got a question about the next subject we want to talk about. Anthony, go ahead. Well, good morning, Stephen. Yeah, I um, on proposal one, I... I already turned in my ballot, and I left that one blank because, uh, yeah, I agree with the transparency, increased transparency, but, and then it, you know, seems like it could decrease the amount of time people spend in the legislature, but it, you know, it seems like they'll be spending more time in the same house if they keep getting reelected, so Mm -hmm. I could see someone sitting in the same chair for much longer if that passes than they currently are, so I didn't vote on one. You didn't vote at all. You didn't vote against it, but you just didn't vote. Or for, yeah, number one, I left it blank. You left it blank. Yeah, Anthony, that's an interesting That's an interesting decision. I'm really intrigued by that. Uh, thanks for the call and the info. Zach, let's talk 
about proposal one and you know it's been it's been what 20 years 30 years now since we, almost 30 years well actually 30 years exactly since that's right it was 2002 when yeah. we when we adopted term limits and we adopted them not just in the legislature but uh, for all the executive offices as well this proposal would loosen those limits a little bit but importantly and i think this was an important strategic decision it's paired with more disclosure, more financial disclosure for the people who are elected. Talk about Proposal 1. So for years, I mean, as long as I've covered the Capitol, there has been angst about Michigan's term limits law, which voters passed in 1992, really at the peak of the term limits movement, which kind of died in the 90s. There, there were a series of states, including Michigan, that enacted term limits, and then it kind of petered out, part of the throw-the-bums-out movement, mm-hmm. uh, Michigan House of Representatives limited to three two-year terms. Michigan Senate limited to, to two four-year terms. It is, and, and it's a lifetime limit. It is the strictest term limit law in the nation among the states, for sure. So there's been angst for years that this has created an extreme level of churn in the legislature, particularly in the Michigan House, because most people who are serving in the Senate previously served in the House. So the inexperience question and stability questions aren't as pointed there. Um, it, it, things like, uh, you know, first-term members chairing complex committees uh, and not really understanding the material uh, in front of them. Uh, people running for Speaker of the House, which is leading a, a complex operation, uh, before they even get in the door uh, for their first term and, and ended up leading the House in just their second or third term. And, and sometimes it worked out fine, and other times it really did not. Um, so you have all of that angst that's built up for years um, about poor, you know, poor operations uh, in, the, in the House. But forever, no one ever did anything about it. It was just sort of understood, well, voters will never pass a term limits change. Mm-hmm. How do we do this? No one wanted to put up the money to do it. Finally, the idea came about to pair it with financial disclosure for state elected officials, of which there is currently none. (laughs) I believe Michigan is one of two states that has no financial disclosure requirements for its state elected officials. Mm. So the idea here was we're going to require some financial disclosure. It's less than what members of Congress have to disclose about their personal finances, but it is something. Um, uh, But in addition, change the term limits law so you can serve 12 years in the legislature in whatever house you want or combination thereof. So if someone wants to serve 12 years in the House instead of the current six-year limit, they can do that. Anthony is right in the way he described it, that, yeah, someone could stay in the same House uh, longer than they could now. Um, so that is the, the guts of the proposal. Hmm. And and this idea of people staying longer, as Anthony points out, you know, it worries some some voters. At the same time, there are, there are so many frustrations with the way things work in Lansing or don't work uh, that it seems like this would, this would make it a little better, at least. This would give people a little longer to learn the ropes before they have to run the place. Right. So there's, I want to be clear. I don't think there's any like silver bullet or panacea to fix politics. And of course, the, the no side will say, well, look at Congress. There's no term limits there. And it's a, it's a total mess. And it's, it's no better. And I, I can certainly, you know, understand that that feeling. There's uh, concerns about the, the bad old days where somebody would chair a committee for years and years and years and play favorites, punish enemies and so forth. And, and, and no one wants to see a return to that. Um, but th- this would seem to help the House. I, I don't know that how anyone could really disagree with that, that the idea that someone, you know, is sharing a budget that handles Medicaid, which is very complex stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I always like to tell the story of the representative who chaired that budget subcommittee a few years ago. Smart person, pretty capable legislator, uh, started chairing it. I, I can't remember if it was the second or third term. But he basically said, this is too much for, you know, this is too complex for someone this new. And I think that really says it all. Uh, You know, if you had had a chance to kind of come up, learn the ropes, learn the material, and then in your, you know, sixth or seventh year, you're the chair, 
that I think will, you know, should stabilize things. People, you know, as Speaker of the House, you know, we've had situations where Speakers of the House have never had to shepherd a major legislative issue to passage, which Mm -hmm. really should be a a prerequisite (laughs) to be Speaker of the House. Um, And this, I think, is going to make that far more likely uh, that, you know, people will have to uh, demonstrate something beyond just being a really good political fundraiser, which will still be a major requirement. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I think it, it, it should create some more stability. Um, I know the no side is concerned about the return of the you know, permanent politician and, and that sort of thing. But 12 years is about the average of what people served before term limits. It was definitely the exception that people stayed more than 20 years uh, 30 years that those were relatively unusual yeah um so yeah. we'll see but the ghost of dominic jacobetti still <laughs> right still haunts us yeah. here in, in michigan right well, 30 years <laughs> after his passing you know he served more than 40 years or i think 40 years or so uh, and you're right as, as chair of the appropriations committee forever and uh, that that specter still is out there among yeah, some people. Yeah. Uh, what about the the disclosure here is this a substantive change in what voters and citizens will be able to know about how their their legislators are, are raising money? Well, I, I would say this. It's like I said, it's not what Congress provides, which is, is pretty detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will provide at least a base level of information. You know, if you have if you're earning income from other entities you're going to have to disclose what those entities are. I think a lot of folks would probably say the disclosure could have been better. And in fact, the proposal that the organization started with when they were planning to gather signatures was tougher. It, it did call for the congressional level of disclosure. But I think they, they re, you know, either they realized they weren't going to get the signatures or they just realized it would be a heck of a lot easier if we could just get the legislature to put this on the ballot and not go through all that. We could save some money in the process. So they convinced the legislature uh, to put it on the ballot. You can do that with two-thirds majorities in the House and Senate and to amend the Constitution. But as part of that, the legislature softened the language the group had been pursuing. So it's, it's less than what Congress requires, particularly in terms of the amounts of money mm-hmm. you earn from other sources that have to be disclosed. But I think the question a lot of people have had sometimes when certain bills pass or funding appropriations get directed to a certain place is, hey, did any legislators, you know, maybe personally benefit as a result? Uh, You know, under the House and Senate rules, you are supposed to recuse yourself if you could personally benefit from something. But it's it's voluntary. You know, there's no teeth to that. Uh, Now, you know, people could see, oh, well, legislator A. Uh, is on the board of this corporation, which just got, you know, a huge tax break. You know, that, I think that's what this would, you know, the kind of thing this would reveal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Sarah on Twitter says, the lack of a firm answer from pro-Prop 3 folks about how far their amendment would go and Guess the courts will just straighten it out later if it passes is not a great look. Interesting criticism of uh, of the language and 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 I guess breadth of proposal three. Uh, Ed on Twitter says, "I'm happy that the short sighted term limit law is back on the ballot. Currently, every few years, is like chickens with their heads cut off." And Lansing, you are not wrong uh, about that, Ed. Let's go back to the phones here, Phyllis and Warren. Phyllis, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. I'm curious about an abortion issue. Uh, Why is it that this is all a one-party system? Did this woman get impregnated virgin birth? I mean, did the angels come down and suddenly she was Mm. expecting a baby? Where is the other guy? Where is the father? Where is the sperm donor? Where is the other part of this human being? And I feel that the... The government and the people have been taking after women and taking after women. It's all her fault. She's got the baby, and she better do it the way we say she should do it. And um, I'm curious, where is this other guy, Stephen? Have you found him yet? So, <laughs> I, I haven't, Phyllis, but, but I'm, I'm wondering what you would like 
to see, I guess from a legislative or constitutional standpoint, I mean, I assume that, that you will vote um, on November on this on this proposal. Does this make you not favor the proposal? I, or? I, I have tried to read the proposal, and I find the language to be very, very confusing, if you mm. will. Yeah. And I have thought of even not voting on that amendment. Mm. Um, I think that how can you legislate this? Maybe it's time to realize that maybe you can't and maybe you shouldn't, or else you're going to have to get the male, the parent, the father of this baby. Mm. They're both going to have to be involved. If you do not want that woman to have an abortion, then you must order that father to support that child. Mm. Uh, Phyllis, I really appreciate the call, and and that's a really interesting perspective, Zach. That you know, the, 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 there is some complexity to this, to this proposal, and and if people take the time to try to read through it, I, I suppose they could come out the other side more confused than they were uh, just thinking about it in in stark terms. Well, you know, the actual language of the proposal is not what's on the ballot. You know, there's a I think a slightly less than 100 word summary right. put in place there. Uh, for people uh, to read. And I, I just think, you know, for most people who are upset about the Dobbs decision and believe that abortion should be legal, now maybe they think it should be only legal uh, up to a certain number of weeks. Uh, maybe they think um, it should be legal, but, you know, t- lots and lots and lots of regulations. Or maybe they think it should be legal and it should be relatively unfettered. Um, I think what the yes side is counting on is a, a gut level feeling among people that people should be that, that abortion should be legal um, in some way, and that no matter where you fall on that spectrum of where you know what should be legal and what shouldn't, you're going to vote yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they, their message has basically been bring back the rights that existed under Roe. Um, this would you know maybe go a little farther than that. Um, again, we don't really know. It's, again, that definition of compelling is going to have to be, um, that's going to have to be litigated to yep. determine that. Uh, but that's also but that, not... That, that's that, clearly their message. Yeah, and that's also not unusual, right? Uh, when, we no. have, when we have these proposals and people vote for them and they pass, there's often some, some either legislative or judicial clarity that's got to be brought well, to... Well, look at the... Right. Look at the marijuana proposal. That's right. Uh, that we've had. I mean, those have been a, a, a long list of court cases to sort that out. And, the, you know, the sky has not fallen. Now, granted, many people would say, well, this is a far more serious issue. And I, I certainly understand that. Um, but it, it, to your point, it, it is not uncommon at all to have ballot proposals litigated in the courts afterward. It, yeah. it is relatively it's regular pretty, and normal. It's pretty common, yeah. Uh, before I have to let you go, Zach, I, I do want to talk about the other proposal, which is about voting reforms. As I said in the open, we've been on this long path, I think, of changing the way that we vote here in Michigan. A lot of people would say making it easier and more accessible. Some other people would say uh, making it more susceptible to to fraud or, or hijinks. Uh, but what is the the proposal that's on the ballot and what would it do in november so it would do a lot (laughs) it's it it builds off of the proposal three from 2018 which Mm -hmm. created the no reason absentee voting same day registration uh and automatic right to vote a straight ticket ballot so this would create a fundamental right to vote in the constitution and the idea here is this was born of a conservative republican effort to put in some new voting restrictions, mm-hmm. uh, namely uh, under a no, another proposal, which possibly the legislature will be voting on. Uh, if people wanted to vote absentee ballot, they would have to show photo ID. That is not currently required. And that would be a new requirement. And it would also, this conservative proposal, mandate that you show photo ID at the polls. Right now, we're under a 1990s era law, which says, Yes, you do need to show ID at the polls, but you can uh, avoid that if you instead sign a sworn affidavit attesting to your identity. Relatively few people use that mechanism. Most 
uh, show photo ID, but this would instead require it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this conservative proposal. So this new one was born of a desire to uh, supersede what the Republicans were trying to do. So it would say, keep the existing voter ID pieces in place, meaning you don't have to show ID if you vote absentee. And instead of showing ID at the precincts, you could sign a sworn affidavit. Instead, it would create early voting for the first time. So uh, there would be a nine-day early voting period. A number of other states have this where you could show up uh, at your clerk's office, most likely, uh, and vote just as you would on Election Day, uh, you know, in a a booth uh, using the same ballot and turn it in. And you wouldn't have to go through the absentee process uh, where you would you know, put it in a drop box or drop it off at the clerk in a mm-hmm. special envelope that you sign. Um, so that would be new and, and different. Um, it would uh, allow military votes to count uh, up to six days after Election Day, provided they were mailed at least, you know, before 8 p.m. of Election Day. And it would require the state to pay for drop boxes uh, in communities uh, as well as the cost of prepaid postage on absentee ballot applications and uh, the return of those ballots via mail. Uh, there's also some pieces there to assure that county boards of canvassers and the board of state canvassers can only act uh, on certifying elections based on what's uh, in statute, basically making sure there isn't a situation like what started in 2020 where some county boards of canvassers hesitated to certify the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there mm-hmm. in this proposal. And and it's fair to describe it all as continuing this journey toward wider access, uh, more protection for voters, and less on the side of voter scrutiny. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, it's brought by the same people, the same organizations who had Proposal 3 of 2018, the one I mentioned earlier, with yeah. no reason absentee voting. Yeah. Okay, uh, Zach Gorchow, it's always great to have you here on Detroit Today, and especially today when we're talking about pretty complex stuff uh, that voters will see on their ballots in November. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. All right. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we are going to stay on the topic of politics here in Michigan. But we're going to talk about lawmakers' recent decision to add almost a billion dollars to a fund that is designed to attract more businesses to the state. Lauren Gibbons, a reporter who covers Michigan politics for Bridge Michigan, will join us next. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. And you can hashtag us at Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. What's the best way to attract more business to Michigan? It's something that we constantly debate. We're always trying to figure out how we add more jobs and expand the economic pie. And we talk about whether we ought to fiddle with the tax structure as a way of luring more people to do business here or offer incentives to have better things, to have better parks, nicer schools, more effective transit, and all the other projects that we think about here in Michigan. We do need more money to make a lot of those things happen. And a lot of that could be possible with new business activity. And that's also why this has attracted a lot of attention when lawmakers met recently. They added almost a billion dollars to the Michigan state budget in an attempt to attract new businesses to Michigan. Is that the right way to go about it? Or is that sort of chasing our tails and 
maybe we should be thinking about different strategies to grow businesses instead of luring them. To talk about all of these issues and the questions surrounding them, we've got Lauren Gibbons. She's a reporter who covers politics for Bridge, Michigan, and she has been covering this issue in her recent reporting. Lauren, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk about this uh, $846 million in spending to attract new businesses. Uh, where's this money going, and how will it attract new economic growth to Michigan? Yeah, so this uh, this money uh, was approved for a relatively new fund called the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve. And as you said, it brought the available balance to $846-ish million. Um, and so this money would be going to um, essentially uh, trying to attract uh, a large-scale businesses to Michigan. That's kind of the goal. Um, Some of the funding has been earmarked for site development to kind of identify um, areas where a large business could relocate. Um, And so essentially, yeah, it's trying to authorize uh, this money to be uh, sort of flexible in offering incentives to bring these big businesses into Michigan. Now, we saw this week uh, that a couple of new companies uh, committed to opening electric vehicle battery plants in Michigan. That's been a big part of this push for the new incentives. Uh, and that was uh, those those would be located near Big Rapids mm-hmm. and in Western Wayne County. So, so that's kind of the goal with this money is to get these big businesses here to put out a, a bat signal, if you will, to businesses around the country and around the world saying, hey, Michigan is uh, interested in getting these large scale businesses. Yeah. So uh, I want to go back in time just a little bit to when Rick Snyder was the governor and calling himself one tough nerd, maybe the, the, the nerdiest of uh, his days in office were kind of enshrined by this idea that this is the wrong way to do business. He announced during his campaign that when he was first running for governor that he was going to get rid of these kinds of incentive programs. And when he was elected, he did get rid of quite a few. Now, in, in the later years, he had to back off of that because of legislative pressure. But this debate has been going on in Lansing for a long time. And and there are questions on both sides about, I guess, whether this actually works. What were some of the questions that, that legislators this time raised about this approach? Oh, sure. And uh, yeah, to your point, uh, this debate continued uh, even last week when Mm -hmm. this funding was approved, uh, even uh, to the extent that uh, the House Appropriations Chair was so opposed to the idea that he resigned from that particular post. Now, he's still a lawmaker, but that was a pretty big sign of protest against uh, this sort of spending. And um, Uh, Some of the criticisms have been uh, just sort of the lack of safeguards, if you will, uh, in approving this money, offering these incentive packages, and not uh, putting a little teeth in those packages uh, to make sure that the jobs uh, that were promised are actually fulfilled or that there's not uh, layoffs down the road, um, it, and essentially just uh, adding in some protections to ensure that the investment is sound. So that that is uh, still a thrumming undercurrent of this conversation, the question of whether this is the right approach to attract business um, or or if other other things should be focused on like improving the quality of life in Michigan to make it a more attractive place to be um, so workers want to come to Michigan. There's there's a long-running debate about what the right approach is here. Now, this particular package was pretty bipartisan. It passed with bipartisan support. But, mm-hmm. yes, there was some loud critiques of, of using this much money, especially this much money, uh, to attract business. Yeah. Uh, House Appropriations Chair Thomas Albert, a Republican from Lowell, announced he was going to resign his chairmanship uh, over over this issue. That doesn't happen every day in, in Lansing. Is that just posturing on his part or is he is he genuinely, uh, I guess, offended by this uh, this approach? 
You know, it doesn't happen every day. That's true. And this is part of it. Uh, there were probably some other uh, things going on as well. Um, he was very hesitant to spend um, a lot of the money that Michigan has been sitting on, uh, both in terms of the federal funding that's been approved, uh, both for COVID and other uh, other uh, uses, and then um, also the the surplus that Michigan has had in the last couple of years in the budget. And uh, Representative Albert had been hesitant to look at ways to use those funds. He was uh, supportive of uh, kind of keeping them in reserve in the event that the economy uh, tanks down the road or, you know, just watching those high inflation rates. That was a pretty far break from other members of House leadership and other uh lawmakers and the governor's administration. So um, so he had been um, opposed to some of that spending for a long time. Yeah. But this uh, this supplemental package uh, was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Let's go to John in Dearborn. John, what's on your mind? Hi. Uh, so my perspective of the the spending is if it's going to be this much money used, and you, you said it was a billion dollars, right? Close to, yeah. Okay. Um, so if that amount of money is going to be used, I feel like it's important to have uh, like very – uh, well thought out and planned uh, business planning because a lot of investments today seem to get kind of wasted because of potential pit- pitfalls and blind spots in business plans. Sure. And people, you know, when they invest, they expect to at least get something back. But I feel like a lot of the time, uh, the money's not really going, you know, to anything other than a misunderstood business model that winds up failing. Hmm. Uh, John, it's a great point, and it it, it runs alongside the questions about what the consequences maybe should be if businesses who receive this kind of help don't deliver on on the promises uh, that they've made. But, But Lauren, talk about the kind of scrutiny up front, I guess, that businesses would be getting if they applied to, 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 to get this this kind of uh, this kind of money. Is there a, a real check of the possibility that uh, that they'll be able to do what they say they want to do? Yeah, I think that remains to be seen, um, at least for some of these brand new projects that have just been announced. Uh, but supporters of this plan have said that part of the reason uh, they are you know, authorizing certain amounts of funding at a time is uh, is to essentially um, add some discipline in um, making sure that this isn't a rubber stamp fund for businesses. We heard that from Senate Majority Leader Shirky. We heard that from some Democrats as well, saying you know the legislature um, is is working with local officials to be proactive and kind of uh, not only not only listening to some of the more serious uh, possibilities for development, but also, you know, kind of looking at uh, finding and readying uh, those potential sites that could potentially be used to attract business. Uh, but that said, yeah, there is uh, there there is an undercurrent of, you know, is this the right approach? Um, are is the legislature and the administration you know, enough of a check on on these businesses, uh, and can they can they adequately ensure that these businesses will commit uh, to what they say they're committing to? So, yeah. there's there's definitely that ongoing conversation for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, uh, John, appreciate the call on the question. Let's go to Joe in Rochester Hills. Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, how you doing this morning? Good. How are you? Oh, good, real good. Yeah. Um, my my first point is um, on on any one of these uh, endeavors when we have incentives, we never look at it the way we should. It's bringing in new industry, not new business, because hmm. um, because we're doing the same old thing with the same old industries, um, and you know it's it always ends up you know ends up being a partisan thing in the end mm-hmm. um so i mean so we should step back and look at the future look at 
what's what 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 do we need to be down the road? I right. mean, we need jo- we need to look at things in, in you know artificial intelligence, automation, all these sort of areas where we're all we are uh, we are consumers of it. We don't produce it here. Yeah, uh, um, Joe, that's a really great point, and I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. Uh, Lauren, how much of this is about expanding? Uh, into new areas of, of business and industry, and how much of it is about, you know, buttressing and solidifying our our attachment to manufacturing and, and autos in particular? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And we've heard, especially when the SOAR fund was first introduced as a concept, we heard the major supporters of this saying that this is a way for Michigan to kind of expand beyond what we're currently doing. Now, Michigan is, of course, known uh, for its manufacturing base, um, but you can see in the types of businesses that are being courted here, the businesses that we've seen come forward, these are uh, these are electric vehicle battery plants, right? That's an intent to kind of move away from the gas powered into, you know, this new area of industry. So it, it will be really interesting to see what lawmakers and uh, the administration and uh, future administrations want to do here and whether uh, there's openings for these other industries to make a case for coming to Michigan and potentially uh, opting into these incentives. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lauren Gibbons, reporter who covers Michigan politics for Bridge Michigan. It's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for coming by to explain all of this. Thanks so much for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with the author about a new book on parenting, how it's changed, the new challenges it presents, and how to find grace within the chaos that parenting often demands. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.